Hi there, I'm Maddie and I serve on the Joy Production team. Thank you so much for joining us online today. Through taking the time to listen to this message, we pray you'll not only come to know more about God, but you'll come to know more about yourself as well. Once again, thank you for joining us and we hope you enjoy today's message. Praise God from whom all blessings flow. Praise Him, all creatures here below. Praise Him above ye heavenly host. Praise Father, Son, and Holy Ghost. If you would just hear doxology, the glory of Christmas, perhaps you would associate it with the song. And you wonder, well, what does the song have to do with Christmas? What does this saying that I heard at every church service that I went to as a kid or growing up or as as an adult, what does that have to do with Christmas? And my, my point is this morning is that it has everything to do with Christmas. It is one of the most, I think, one of the most important details of really what Christmas is about. The word doxology, again, is from two Greek words. The word doxology, the word doxa in the Greek means glory. It means splendor or majesty or grandeur. It means something big. When you talk about the glory, and, and in the Bible, it's the glory of God, you're talking about the splendor of God, the majesty of God, the weight, not like, not like weight, but the, the presence of God. And so doxology, glory, the, the, the ology part of it actually is the Greek word logos, which means word. It means speaking. It means statement or string of words. And when I look at the word doxology, and actually definition, a doxology is a praise saying. It is a saying about God's glory. When we refer to doxology, it is a word, a burst of praise, a saying about God's glory. It is praise uttered that bursts from a soul that has caught sight of the greatness, the goodness, and the grace of God. I want to read that one more time because I think it is so important. A doxology is a praise saying, a burst of praise that is uttered, uh, praise uttered that bursts from a soul that has caught sight of the greatness and the goodness of the grace of God. So when you are confronted with the glory, the grandeur, the presence, the greatness, the awesomeness, the mercy, and the love of God, a doxology, a burst or string of words defining or expressing the glory of God would flow from a person's heart because they've seen God. The very first doxology in the New Testament, I think, is, is, is very significant and actually 
theologians who study this stuff, there is parameters. There are rules as to what you can call. There are many, many doxologies in the New Testament and in the Old Testament, and there are rules and parameters as it relates to how you would declare or, or define something as a doxology. Sometimes it was at the end of a, a passage or an end of a chapter or an end of a book. Sometimes it was at the very beginning. But the very first doxology in the New Testament, it, it, it happened after the angel had come and presented himself to, to Mary. And if you remember the story, here's Mary. She's, you know, a servant gal, a servant girl, and, and, and she's meek and she's lowly. She's humble, you know, been pleasing to God. The angel shows up, and, and, and after you kind of get through Angel 101, Angelology 101 is always, you know, first words of an angel, fear not, because it was, it was something that was, you know, not very common. So the angel showed up. She's afraid. He says, fear not. And he said, you, you're, you're blessed and you are favored. God has chosen you to give birth to his son. Something miraculous is going to happen. And she obviously has questions. How can this be? I'm engaged. I, I've never been with a man. I, I don't know. I, there's no way I could be pregnant. How is that going to happen? And the angel just patiently answers the questions. And finally, she says, be it unto me according to your word. And then a doxology, a burst of praise, a, an expression of a soul that had been confronted or, 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 or embraced or engaged with the presence of God. And she says in Luke chapter 1 and verse 46, Mary said, my soul magnifies the Lord and my spirit has rejoiced in God my Savior, for he has regarded the lowly state of his maidservant. For behold, henceforth all generations will call me blessed. <clears throat> he who is mighty has done great things for me. And holy is his name. Here she was in that moment. She had caught sight of the glory of God, the greatness of God, a revelation or a manifestation of the grandeur of God. And she just couldn't contain it. And she began to express it. It began to pour out of her heart in a, in a means of praise to God. And so when you look at the word, if you could, if, if you, when you look at the word doxology, um, if you would go ahead and put that next slide up for just a moment. I think it's the next slide. A doxology is a study of glory or studying glory. The word, if you just look at it, ology, that last part, when we think of biology, zoology, it is a study along a particular topic. It is to really dig in and to investigate into, uh, to understand more fully a particular uh, uh, avenue of science or whatever it might be. Uh, if you put the word ologist at the end of it, a zoologist, a biologist, it is the person who studies that particular thing. And so when you look at the word doxology, it's, again, doxa meaning glory, study of glory. What we're really talking about in a doxology is the study of glory. And when you look at the word glory in the New Testament, <clears throat> or really through the Bible, over 400 times the word glory is, is, is given to us. But, but the idea of glory, this is from uh, Strong's Exhaustive Concordance of Greek New Testament words. And the definition of glory is, number one, it is a revelation of all that God is and all that God has. Now, trust me, I am not in the weeds yet. And you might be sitting here this morning thinking, what has this got to do with me? What has this got to do with Christmas? Please, just, just bear with me for a couple of moments, and, and, and I think the picture will begin to be clear. The word glory means the acts and the nature of God in self-manifestation. Jesus is the glory of God. He was the outshining of God. He was God manifest in the presence. It is, it is a revelation of all that God is and all that God has. Sorry for the order in, difference there, but, but, but the word glory is a revelation of everything that God is and all that God has. If you went back to the Old Testament, Moses, uh, 
There was a time in Moses' life where he was like, I, God, I want to know you. God, I want to see you. I, I want to see your glory. I want to see your mass, the stuff that you're made of. I want to see what you're like. And God said, you can't handle it. It's too big for you. It, it's just too much. He said, I'm going to hide you here. I'll put you in this place, but I, and I'll pass. He said, I will make all my glory pass before you, and you will only see my backside. And, and Moses had that encounter with God that was so powerful in his life, but, but he saw a glimpse. He got a glimpse of everything that God was and everything that God is and has. And, and so when we apply this to Jesus, again, the word glory in the definition of glory occurs about 400 times in the Bible. It's known as an outward manifestation of the presence of God in all of his splendor as he reveals himself to man. When we talk about glory, it is God's desire to reveal himself to you and to me. And in that, we have, I think, one of the most important parts of the Christmas story. Because God has always wanted to show himself, reveal himself to, to, to humanity. He wants us to know him. The word Emmanuel. Emmanuel, God with us. He's always wanted to be with us. He's always wanted to fellowship with us. He's always wanted to treat us as it was like in the days back in the Garden of Eden when God would come and visit Adam and Eve in the cool of the day and they would fellowship, they would be together. That's what God desired. But sin entered in. And when sin entered in, it severed that relationship. It severed that ability. But the desire of God never left. He's always wanted to be with humanity. He wanted us to catch his glory, to catch a glimpse of his majesty, of his splendor, of his grace, of his, of his mercy, <clears throat> of, his, uh, of his great joy. All of those things that he wants to declare to us. And he's always wanted to do that. He's wanted us to see his glory. And that brings me to what we're celebrating this month, the birth of Christ. And I, I hope... In fact, I'm sure that most of you, you can cut past a lot of the tradition that, that is associated with Christmas. You can look past some of those things and, 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 and hopefully fix your eyes on Jesus. Fix your eyes on what it is that he came to do and what was in the heart of the Heavenly Father as he sent his son, revealed himself through his son to humanity uh, here in this earth. And so my contention and what I want to kind of, without getting too far into the weeds, I look at it like this. Jesus is God's doxology to us. Jesus is God's burst of praise to us. Jesus is God's manifestation of glory to us. And in John chapter 1 and verse 1, it says this. In the beginning was the word. Everybody say word. Now, many of you, this is familiar to you. But the word word is the Greek word logos. In the beginning was the Logos, and the Logos was with God, and the Logos was God. Now, for those of us that are veterans of Christianity, we've probably heard this verse. We've heard that phrase, that even the idea that Jesus, the Word, is, is the Logos of God. He is the Word of God, and that is accurate. That is correct. But it's a Greek word. Greeks didn't have a concept necessarily. They didn't have an understanding of God as the Hebrews or the Jews did. And so when, when, when the Greeks understood or how the Greeks understood the word logos was different because the Greeks had, you know, they, they desired knowledge. They desired an understanding. They studied things and they, they applied things and they wanted to know depth. They wanted to know nuance. And, and so when a, a Greek-speaking person would hear the word logos, it's, I found this, it says, the word logos referred to a universal 
divine reason that was in the cosmos. This word logos was what ordered it and gave it form and meaning. They called the logos providence, nature, or the soul of the universe. They had a totally different concept of what the word logos meant. They understood it. When they heard the word logos, they thought, oh, it's that, it's that providence that just kind of operates everything. It's, it's just that, it, it, it's that thing, you know. It's, it's like if you ever watched Star Trek and they would have, you know, this thing. It was glowing and it had a power. That's what they thought that providence was. They didn't understand it as something that was personal or someone who was personal. They understood it as a force. They understood it as a power. The ancient philosophers, as they sought to understand these things, they came up with this term to, to describe the ultimate reality. That logos was the ultimate reality, and if you could engage it, if you could get in sync with it, then you would understand depth and meaning and other things like that. In fact, the word logos was understood to be that which gave meaning to life. They didn't associate it with a being. They associated it just with a force or with a power. And so when John was using this word, he was using it very intentionally, particularly for some of the readers that he was going to be engaging. John's gospel begins with the idea that this logos, this divine reason, this divine force came to this earth and really what he was doing was using something that was familiar to the Greek mind as a way to connect it to Jesus <clears throat> because they had no reference, they had no form to understand the coming of God's son. And so Jesus, John was now trying to connect the thinking of the Greeks and bring them to Jesus so that they could understand him as the son of God. And so when he began, in the beginning was the Logos, and the Logos was with God, and the Logos was God, I think that for the, the Greek mind, it probably wasn't that challenging. They, they might have kind of like, ah, you know, I think he's maybe pushing it a little bit too far. <clears throat> but just a few verses later in this chapter, he gives something that I think would have shocked them, the Greek mind, the Greek reader or listener. I think they would have like, wait, what? He says in verse 14, in John chapter 1 and verse 14, and the word or the logos, this reality that's behind the providence of the universe, this logos, this word became flesh. This, this logos, this, this divine essence, or really this essence, it took on human form. This would have been shocking to the Greek mind. They were like, wait a minute, because they did not associate this word logos or this power of logos with a being or with a person. And not only did that logos become flesh, John goes on and he says, and the word became flesh and lived or dwelt among us. Now, this is, this is revolutionary thinking. This is revolutionary talking. <clears throat> this, is, this is totally beyond the realm of their understanding at that moment. And I, I, I stress these things because I think that sometimes because we are so familiar with the story, we're so familiar with so many of these things that we have a tendency to just kind of like the price of lettuce. Oh, yeah, uh-huh. And it's just, we just pass it by. But this is some revolutionary stuff that John is now de describing or expressing. And so this logos, this meaning of, uh, of the universe, this soul of the universe has now become flesh and it's now dwelt among us. He lived among us. And you might be here this morning thinking, so what? Pastor Brian, get to your point. I am. <laughs> I want to. But I think that without 
a little bit of background that perhaps we could either get hung up on this idea, what is doxology, and miss a bigger point. And, and, and that's simply, if I could prove the point this way, how many of you have ever heard the phrase, actions speak louder than words? Right? Or, or if you've ever heard this, or maybe somebody said this to you, I can't hear what you're saying because I see what you're doing. Right? Why? Because what you say and what you do are two different things. So really, actions don't just speak louder than words. Actions are a declaration of your words. Actions actually define the meaning of what you're doing or saying. Jesus said, you'll know them by the fruit of their life. And you're, you are known by the fruit of your life. And, and, and so when John's writing this, he says this, verse 14 and the word, the logos, this essence of God, became flesh. He dwelt among us, and we beheld his glory. We beheld his glory, doxa. We beheld his grandeur. John is giving an eyewitness account. Man, we saw it. We felt it. We knew what it was like to be in his presence, and it was glorious. We beheld his glory, the glory of God in all of his splendor, as of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. Grace and truth. Grace and truth. This doxology that was sent from God, this glory of God that was revealed in human form came as a declaration of God's grace and God's truth. And we as human beings, and particularly we as followers of Christ at times have had an, an extremely uncomfortable relationship between grace and truth. At times, and we didn't know how to reconcile the two. And when Jesus came, there's a theological word used called the incarnation. The incarnation gives us the theology or the understanding that God is not, or Jesus was not half man and half God. Jesus is 100% God and he is 100% man. He's, he's 100% of both. And so when John writes that we saw his glory, we beheld it, we handled it, we were around it, we heard him and we saw him and we experienced and he was full of grace and full of truth. And I think it's very significant that he uses those words and he says those things because it's in that struggle that we all have for grace and truth that God sent his son. And at that particular day and time, and the book of Galatians says that, that in the fullness of time, God sent his son born of a virgin. When the time was right, God sent his son. And the world was in confusion and the world was in darkness in this relationship between grace and truth. God had always wanted to show himself, to reveal himself. He wanted, declare, wanted to declare himself to humanity. But this idea of truth or the law continued to get in the way. And it was messy, this idea between grace and truth. And it was hard for people to understand. John goes on in his writing, verse 16, he said, and of his fullness, the fullness of grace and truth, we've all received in grace for grace. And then verse 17, for the law was given, the law was given through Moses. And you remember the, what the law represents. The law was that thing that nobody could keep. The law was given, we talked about this a few weeks ago, but the law was given to show us that we were lawbreakers. 
The law was given to reveal us, reveal to us that there was something broken in humanity that didn't, that, that didn't allow us to be a doer of what God said to do. We would maybe start out with good intentions and fall short. And Peter or James writes a little bit later, or Peter wrote, and he said a little bit later, he said, if you try to keep one part of the law, you're going to be, and, and you break it, you're guilty of all the law. 99% is not good enough. You're guilty of all the law if you break just one thing of the law. And so the law was designed to show us we couldn't keep the law, the law that came through Moses. But notice, he goes on and says, but grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. Jesus is the logos. He is the word that was made flesh to reveal to us God's glory, God's power, God's majesty. And so the doxology, in my opinion, Jesus is grace and truth in action. And actions speak louder than words. And if you want to know what Jesus meant, and, and Jesus, I don't think Jesus came to strike a balance between grace and truth. Again, he wasn't just a little bit grace and a little bit truth. He was the embodiment of both. And if you want to know what Jesus as grace and truth, Jesus as the doxology meant, or what God meant, and he wanted to show us that we need to follow the actions of Jesus. We need to listen to the things that Jesus said. And I think this, that I was like, why is this important? Why should this matter to me? I think the, that a lot of people have the concept, and I see it on Facebook all the time. Uh, <laughs> I have several high school friends, acquaintances uh, that I, you know, were fr friends on Facebook. Anyway, um, I see this argument from time to time, and I feel like, and I, I don't, I very rarely comment on posts, and uh, there's one particular classmate that I commented on a post, and, and I want to tell you what necessarily the, started the whole thing, definitely not a believer, and, and totally polar opposite to a lot of things of what I believe, and, and they made a particular statement, and I, I pointed out a scripture, a reference to God, and this person, and and. Don't do that. It's never fruitful. It's never a good idea. You get the, right after you get the popcorn eating emoji, you know, it's like, oh, we're going to watch the argument happen now. It's going to go, it's going down kind of a thing. And so I was kind of responsible. And so I, I just gave this little blip of a verse that I knew that this person would know. And, uh, and, and he responded back almost immediately, I prefer the New Testament Jesus to the Old Testament God. To which I then responded, well, they're the same. There is no difference. Jesus, was, Jesus came to reveal God. But there's this concept and this idea that people have that the Old Testament God, that there is this Old Testament God that is just harsh and he's mean and he's full of judgment and it's hellfire and brimstone and God is just this hard taskmaster that, that, that ugh, it's so hard. And then you got Jesus and he's just, oh, good Jesus. We just love Jesus. He just loves us and everything's good and everything's hunky-dory and we really have a weak theology when it comes to God and Jesus because the book of Hebrews says that Jesus was the outshining, the express image of God. It would be like if you took a mold and you pressed something into it and then you pulled it back out, you would have the express image of what is there. It would look exactly like, and that's what God and Jesus are like. If you would press Jesus and God together and pull them apart, they would look identical, the one to the other. There is no difference. And so Jesus came to reveal grace 
and truth. Jesus came to reveal God to humanity. Jesus was the doxology, the word that was spoken, the word that was fashioned and formed over hundreds and hundreds of years so that he could then become the embodiment of the glory of God and live on earth. And if you want to know the relationship between grace and truth, you have to understand and follow the relationship that Jesus had with some of the most messy people on planet earth. And when you look at Jesus' mercy or grace and truth in action, showed up one of the most common stories that, that, that people will refer to when, when we're getting this good God, this good Jesus, bad God, good cop, bad cop idea. They, they'll talk about the woman who was caught with adultery. Who, in fact, I see it a lot. <laughs> if you're without guilt, throw the first stone. How many of you, we all know what that means, right? And so here was this woman who was caught in adultery and, and she's brought before the crowd and the law said, the truth said, she must die. That was the price. And Jesus stepped into the middle of that and with compassion and grace looked at the woman who was in that situation about to teach us all a lesson. And Jesus said, you that are without guilt, cast the first stone. And as he knelt down and began to scribble in the sand you could hear rocks dropping all around. Finally, he looked at the woman after everybody had gone, and I think this is so significant and so important. After everybody was gone, he said, where are your accusers? She said, they're gone. He said, well, I'm not going to accuse you either. But then he said something that we a lot of times miss. He said, go and sin no more. Now, he didn't do that in front of everybody. He didn't point it out first. He didn't do any of those things. What he did, he went to her, waited till that private, intimate moment where he could encourage her heart and say, listen, you need to change. You need to stop. You see, we will never fully embrace the depth of grace until we understand truth. I can, what good is it to know that I'm forgiven if I don't know that I needed to be forgiven? What good is it to know that the grace of God has been made available to me if I think that I can just do whatever I want to do because that's the truth. And, 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 and that's the uneasy relationship that we oftentimes have between grace and truth. When somebody has offended you, when somebody has wronged you in some way, we want something different. We, we want justice. We want judgment. When I've offended a person, when, I've, when, I've, when I clearly know that I've been in the wrong, and I might go to them and say, you know, would you, I'm, I'm so sorry. I did not mean that that way. What a, I want grace at that point. Don't, don't you want grace? When you know you've done something wrong, don't you want grace? Amen. But man, when you are the one that's been wronged, we don't want grace. We don't want them to have grace. We want them to have judgment. We want them to pay. We're going to be the judge and the jury. We're going to convict them. We're going to convict them on Facebook and to our friends and to everybody else. Do you know what they did to me? You see, we're not sure what to do with grace and truth. Yeah, the truth is maybe they offended you. Maybe they said something. Maybe they did something. That is the truth. But what are we going to do? The lesson that we should learn is to do what Jesus did. You don't, you don't just skirt past the truth. I think of the woman at the, at the well. 
here Jesus says, man, I have to go to Samaria because there's, 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 there's a need there. There's a reason I have to go there. And, and so he went to Samaria, and he's, he's by the well, and this woman at the heat of the day comes, and she's dipping water, and he says, hey, can I get a drink from you? And she's like, why are you asking me for a drink? And a lot of uncomfortable things happen, and finally he, he begins to express some things to her, and he begins to say to her, listen, I've got some living water. I have some water that is available to you. If you drink this water, you'll never thirst again. And he was talking about eternal life. He's talking about a divine life. And, and she's kind of leaning in. She's hearing this. She's like, man, this sounds really, really good. She says, give me this water so that I can drink of it. And Jesus said, I, I think from a preacher's standpoint, here he had her right where he wanted her, just about to receive eternal life. And then he says, dun, 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 go get your husband. And in that moment where she's engaging in grace and mercy and love, suddenly Jesus asks her and reminds her of one of the most painful and embarrassing moments of her life because she says, I don't have a husband. And Jesus, being the prophet that he is, said, you're right. You've had five husbands. And the guy you're living with right now is not your husband, implying that he was somebody else's husband. And so what did Jesus do? Jesus, in that moment when he was offering grace to her, reminded her of truth. The depth of grace will not be experienced until you confront and embrace truth. And it's uncomfortable. It's uneasy. And we know the end of the story that, that, that she went, she got him, went and actually told a whole bunch of people and she received from that. But she didn't receive grace until she was able to embrace truth as well. The depth of grace in your life, the depth of grace working in your life will only be in proportion to your willingness to embrace truth. I think of the thief on the cross. Jesus, when he was nailed to the cross, he was nailed. There were two other thieves that were there. One was just a total reprobate. The other one declared he was guilty. Talking to the other thief, and he's like, you know, why are you doing this to Jesus? Why? This guy is righteous. This guy hasn't done anything wrong. He said, we're guilty. I'm guilty. I did the things. I deserve the punishment that I'm getting right now, but this man doesn't deserve punishment. And then the thief, knowing that he deserved death, knowing that he deserved punishment, knowing that he hadn't done one thing right his entire life, and he was now about to pay the price, says to Jesus, Jesus, will you remember me? And what did Jesus say? Absolutely not. You haven't lived one day for me. You haven't done one thing right. Your whole life has been a disaster and a mess. That's not what Jesus did. Jesus said, I will. He said, today, you're going to be with me in paradise. And, and, and You know what Jesus said? This is, I think, one of the most incredible things that he could ever say. Basically, Jesus was saying, you're going to get the exact same reward that I get. You're going to get the exact same reward that I get. Because faith makes the difference. Belief makes the difference. And you might have spent your entire life, as this man had done, not doing anything right and Jesus, who spent his entire life doing everything right and everything he pleased God and everything he pleased the Father. And at the end, because of faith, they both get the same thing. I don't know about you, 
but that's glorious. I don't know about you, but that's beautiful. I don't know about you, but I think that that is awesome. I think that that is one of the most wonderful, wonderful things that God could ever do for you and do for me. That is because I believe something that God and his grace and his mercy can do something about the truth or the condition of my life. That's a reason to be rejoicing and joyful. I believe this, you cannot appreciate the grace and the beauty of Christmas and what God did for us in this Christmas season without understanding and having the backdrop of the cross. It means nothing. It means nothing. But understanding that Jesus was the Lamb of God who was born in this world to take away the sin of this world, that the cross is best understood. And so maybe you're here this morning, maybe, maybe your life's a mess. I'm going to ask you to raise your hands <laughs> at that point. But I think that probably many of you this morning, if I asked you, was your life ever a mess? Was there stuff that went on in your life? Or maybe you're here right now, you're saying, man, my life is a mess right now. Smart people in this room know this, that we are only one mistake away from being a total and complete mess in our lives. We're one dumb step away, Amen. And so Jesus wants to step into the mess of our life. That's what Jesus did for me. That's what Jesus did for a whole lot of people in this room. And that's what Jesus wants to do for this entire world. Jesus wants to become truth. There is a standard of rightness. And all of us fall short of that standard of rightness. And so Jesus also wants to be grace. And he became the vehicle through which grace could come and address the truth of our lives. That we all fall short. The book of Psalms, it says that righteousness and peace, right? Standing with God and peace with God have met together. Mercy and truth have kissed each other. There was something in the mind of God and the plan of God when Jesus came to this earth that remedied the problem of truth and was able to give us grace. And so when the apostle John was writing these things in the beginning, and it's a reference back to the book of Genesis and what happened in the garden, but he said, in the beginning... The Logos was with God, was God, is God. And this Logos became flesh and dwelt among us, and we saw his glory. It was the outshining of God, the plan of God in human form, and he said we beheld his glory, full of grace and full of truth. And John was endeavoring to connect with his audience in a way that they could understand where they were right now to bring them to a different place. Because again, to the Greek mind, this wasn't a personal being. This wasn't a personal thing. It wasn't an embodiment. It was just a force. It was just a power. And it certainly wasn't something that you could receive or reject. And we read the words in John chapter 1 and verse 12. It says this, in John 1, 12, as many has received him, to them he gave the right to become children of God to those who believe in his name. This logos, this divine essence, if you will, to the Greek mind, this embodiment, this, this heart of the universe became flesh and you can receive him. His name's Jesus. You can reject him. His name is Jesus. But if you receive him, here's what happens. You're going to have the right, the privilege, really the authority to be called a child of God. And it's there in that relationship between grace and truth that our hearts and minds struggle. Because 
our hearts and minds remind us of truth, we fall short. Amen? But grace has been made available. Grace is best understood as receiving something that you don't deserve to receive. And the moment that you understand you don't qualify, the moment you understand you're not good enough, the moment you understand that the truth says you're condemned is the moment that you qualify then for grace. If you think, well, I haven't been that bad, or if you think, you know, maybe I could, or if you're here thinking, as soon as I quit this, as soon as I stop that, then you're missing, you're missing the point. The point isn't stop. The point isn't try harder. The point isn't those things. The point is to receive someone. I wanted to say something, grace, but, but Jesus is grace and truth. You receive someone. 2 Corinthians 5 says, if anyone is in Christ, new creation, old's passed away. All things become brand new. Praise God. It's a doxology, a burst of praise to a soul whose heart and mind has been confronted with the grandeur and mercy and majesty of God himself. Jesus is God's doxology to you and to me. He is the Logos made flesh of God's glory. Would you bow your heads this morning? Heavenly Father, in the name of Jesus, come to you this morning. Father, I thank you for grace and truth. I thank you, Heavenly Father, that while it is painful to admit truth, while it is shameful at times to admit truth, we know that it is the only way to the receiving of grace. So, Father, I pray this morning that Jesus in the embodiment of grace and truth would have his work in our life that we would understand truth so that we could receive grace. So Heavenly Father, I thank you that you're here today to meet us. If you're here today and you've never made Jesus the Lord of your life, you've never made him the Savior of your life, maybe your life has been a lot about an uncomfortable truth and shame and guilt but the grace side has been missing. The Bible tells us if we believe in our heart that God raised Jesus from the dead, that is the cross, that is the price that needed to be paid. If we believe that God raised him from the dead, and if we confess with our mouth that he is Lord, that we would be saved. My pleasure this morning would be to lead you in a prayer today. If you're here today and you've never responded to Jesus, you've never made Jesus the Lord of your life, you've never surrendered your life and your way to him, if you're here today and say, I'm ready to do that, would you just lift your hand? I want to pray for you this morning. Anyone at all who would say, yes, thank you. We've got a bunch of hands. One, two, three, four. Thank you, Lord Jesus. Five, six. Thank you, Lord Jesus. Anyone else this morning would say, Pastor Brian, I, I want to make Jesus the Lord of my life. Surrender my way to him. Praise God. Thank you. Thank you so much. Would you pray this prayer with me? I want all, the whole congregation. Heavenly Father, thank you for grace and truth. Thank you for Jesus. I believe Jesus died for me. He paid my price. And I believe that he's alive today. I believe he's seated at your right hand. I put my faith in Jesus and what he did. I believe that's enough. So I declare him the Lord of my life. I thank you, Jesus, that you've forgiven me and that you now give me 
sonship rights. I'm a child of God. Not because of what I did, but because of what I believe. I'm a new creation. Old things have passed away. I thank you for that in Jesus' name. Heavenly Father, I thank you for these that have prayed this prayer for the first time. And Father God, I thank you that you've begun a good work in them. I thank you that even right now that you've removed their sin. I thank you, Heavenly Father, that you put a new life within them. I thank you, Father God, that your grace has been applied. And Lord Jesus, I thank you that as your child they're going to grow, that they will become more and more who you have created them to be. And Father, I thank you that we as a church can come alongside each one of these who are as newborn babes in Christ, that we can help them to grow in you. We thank you for that. In the name of Jesus and everybody said.